Colossians chapter 1. So, starting at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering and joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forg- even the forgiveness of sins." who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they are be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Let us stop there and just turn to the Lord, ask for his spirit to give us wisdom this morning. Father, Again, we come before you, and now as we turn to your word and we seek to understand more of its riches and its depth, Lord, we pray that you would open ears to hear, eyes to see, give me wisdom to bring the word faithfully. I pray, Lord, that um, you would minister the riches, the marrow of your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Eli ben Yosef. He was a young boy whose parents could not afford to pay the rent, and so he had become a slave as a result of that. And then he rejoiced to see the day when his uncle, Hezekiah, brought him free by paying the price of his parents' debt. Amos was a simple cattle farmer near the town of Capernaum. One day, One of the oxen that belonged to him, which he knew was a wilder ox, broke loose and killed the neighboring farmer. The law required him to be stoned. But, fortunately, his family was able to pay a ransom for his life. Exodus 21, 28-32 speaks of this. So Amos was redeemed by the payment of a ransom. Maror Achyeh He was a boy that was abducted in southern Sudan and forced into slavery in northern Sudan. He writes this. He says, one day I told my abductor, Abdurrahman, I wanted to go home. He got angry and tried to cut my throat. 
I was able to dodge his knife cut, but my eyebrow was cut instead. He told me to call him father, and he said my name was Hassan Abdurrahman. I said, he said I was a Muslim, but I did not listen to him. There were lots of Dinka children in that camp who were beaten. One of them, Dut Mahwe, died. Maror was freed in a local scheme in which cattle farmers, or sorry, cattle vaccines are swapped for slaves. Maror was bought at a price. He was redeemed from slavery at the meager cost of cattle vaccines. Redemption is behind all three of these accounts. Eli and Amos were made up. They at the same time reflect ancient Israeli culture and the law itself, as I said there from Exodus. But Maror's story is very real. I've seen his picture. Even though it was many years ago now, I remember the cut that you could see on his face, the scar by his eyebrow. This morning I want to deal with Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, verse, uh, really verses 7 through 12, and then into 13, talk about the Christian life, building on what is known as the epignosis, the knowledge of God. And this really chimes into our Peter series, because in Peter, Peter talks about adding to your faith, to this real, vital, internal knowledge, growing and increasing in the knowledge of God. And the Apostle Paul, similarly to Peter, talks about expanding in your knowledge of God. But notice, particularly at um, verse... um, 10, when it talks about walking worthy. So this is our lives. And then it says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as the Christian life is invested in holiness, we will grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is at core here. But then he does that by strengthening us and calling us to give thanks to God, who is the beginning, the end, and the final um, author and finisher of our faith. And verses 12, 13, and 14 establish this grounding rejoicing in Jesus Christ, but ultimately in God the Father, who works all things through Jesus Christ. And so um, the last time I looked at this text in May, I looked at verse 13. And it talked about being translated from the dark kingdom where we were held to being translated or transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. And this morning I want to deepen that in verse 14. We saw in verse 13 we are at war. There's no such thing as an idle bystander in Christianity and in this world. You are all at some level in one of the two kingdoms. We looked at that. And yet we were delivered as believers from the kingdom of darkness. How was that accomplished? Why couldn't we do it? How can the devil keep us, as it says somewhere else, captive at his will? More specifically, we've got to ask ourselves, what is redemption? What does that really involve for us? So first of all, we must think back to the fall and the curse unto death, because just as in the three accounts that I told, Redemption is needed when things are terribly wrong. You don't need to be redeemed when things are good. You need to be redeemed from something that is not good, from a state you are in. And so our first parents, Adam and Eve, did not start off wrong. Things were good in the Garden of Eden, and we know that. They knew God intimately. They did not know the pain of sickness, of death. They did not know the terrors of an earthquake. 
the rottenness of pride and selfishness which infects us insidiously. They sinned. We know the account. Genesis 3 talks about this, right? And therefore, and this is probably the most staggering part of the account, by one act of transgression of Adam and Eve, all of their descendants would be thrown into the curse. All of creation was cursed. And the shackles of the curse affect everything, everyone. All that we know is affected by these shackles, this bondage. And now we are enslaved to sin outside of Jesus Christ. Each of us is born slaves to sin. Slaves. Slaves are subject to everything their masters tell them to do. They're told where they can sleep, when they can sleep, when they can eat, if they can eat. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6, as slaves to sin, we did according to the motions of our slave master, the motions of sin. Sin affects everything. Don't kid yourself. It affects our thinking. It does. Our thinking is affected by sin. It's called the noetic effects of the fall. It affects our mind. We abuse reason itself to excuse sin. Have you ever heard or thought, well, God gave me wealth and money so I can enjoy it and do what I want with it? Or people who say, well, the Bible doesn't deal specifically with this, and therefore I'm at liberty to do what I want. Sin degrades desire, this slave master does. When we see our friends have a newer car or a newer home, maybe they're more popular than we are, maybe they have a higher position somewhere at your job, they get more in sin, in this corruption, we get jealous and we covet what they have. We all know what that looks like, don't we? Sin corrupts our bodies. We talked this morning in our prayer time about the corruption of that. We pray for those who are ravaged by the corruptions of of the fall, cancer, disease, paralysis. In fact, we have entire medical encyclopedias this thick nowadays on the internet, but I still have one at home, thousand pages that exists because of the curse. Think of that. That's amazing. It's incredible. Sin twists truth. People say the Bible is inerrant to the degree that we believe it. People say, depending on how I feel, that is the best measure of my faith. And my feelings are the arbiters of my genuineness in Christianity and who I am. It's not true. It's not true. So why are we bound to this slave master? What can set us free? The law is what binds us. The strength of sin. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.56, the strength of sin is the law. This means that when we compare ourselves to the perfect law of God, this is key, keep in mind, God's law, we have transgressed or gone over the standard. Think of those signs you see out in the countryside, no hunting, no trespassing. You walk over. You have transgressed that law, that command. And we are all transgressors of the law of God. You ever thought or you cried out, well, after a difficult situation, I don't deserve this. I don't know why God is putting me through this. I do not deserve this. And you maybe have not screamed it out, but you've thought it in your mind. 
The reality is you deserve it, you deserve everything, and deserve worse. The law proclaims, thou shalt not covet, right? Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. The very first thing that the sinner covets is what only belongs to God, his glory. We covet the glory of God. It says in Romans 1.25 that they exchanged the glory of God and created and worshipped the creature more than the creator who is to be worshipped forevermore. And thus, the first commandment is broken as we coveted in sin God's glory. And Adam and Eve were the first to do that. In that transgression, the coveting of God's glory turns into a breaking of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we establish and set up new gods. And we are rife with a culture that is full of creating idols all over the place. In fact, all of our struggles with sin, all of the battles that are ingrained deep within are wrestling with idols we have propped up. You deal with biblical counseling, what are you dealing with? People who have counseled their hearts and are are protecting idols within. We do that all the time. And when people get angry about getting too close to those, you realize you're getting close to that which they value so much. The result of this slavery is ever so serious, isn't it? And we've heard this before. But let this sink in. Eternal damnation, the results. When the verdict, guilty, is read, the law must be enforced. The Bible says, Ezekiel 18, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You and I will die. We are born one day to die. That's crazy. We are born to die one day. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. The price is severe. I've heard a lot of people excuse and dismiss Christianity with all kinds of excuses. But the one question that you can put in front of people, and I have done this in front of my vets, I've done this in front of neighbors and friends, and asked them this question, R.C. Sproul says it's a vital question, is this question. When they denounce God and they denounce any need of him, what will you do with your guilt? You ask that question, and people look down. Usually their eyes do not lock with yours anymore because we all know what guilt is, don't we? Our guilt reflects the right condemnation that is ours. It is the price of cosmic treason. The God whom you and I have offended, he has no equals. He's not a friend to slap on the shoulders. He's not a ruler to kick out of office by majority vote. He's not a casual judge who winks at our mistakes. He is the eternally glorious God, the infinite ruler and creator of all. And if we think lightly of our sins, it is because we have so demoted God, so brought him down to our standards, We are called in Isaiah 40 to behold our God. Israel is called to do that. Behold your God. He who sits on the over in the heavens, commands the stars, calls them by names. This is our God. He is the maker of the ends of the earth. He's the thrice sovereign one before whom the angels cover their their feet and their faces and they cry day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
God calls himself the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. You remember in Acts 12 when those of Tyre and Sidon wanted an audience with King Herod. and they, um, So they went to Jerusalem and it says in Acts 12 that the people see uh, Herod arrayed in all of his royal um, uh, clothing. And we read the people shouting this, it is the voice of a God. What happens? And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghosts. That is the glorious God we serve. He slays kings on the spot. That's how great he is. And we have offended him. Our guilt every day outside of Jesus Christ amasses and amounts a massive guilty verdict. Only an eternal price will satisfy the affront for this disobedience. The full force of the law is against us, and it will be experienced as one day God executes the weight of this wrath. We're sitting here this morning, well-fed, well-dressed. We're sitting here in relative peace and quiet in this nation. We have been blessed so much because God is long-suffering. But we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to sit here. Let's not kid ourselves. The pains of war, the tragedies of tornadoes, the hurt of you and I being manipulated by those close to us, the carnage of broken marriages, the devastation it leaves behind to the children, the guilt of selfishness, these are but birth pangs of the eternal sufferings of hell itself. They're but beginnings. Eternal hell alone reflects the just condemnation of our sinfulness and our slavery to sin. Is there any that can remit such a high cost to pay the price? Who, within time, can secure a release of an offense that was done against him who is beyond time, who is eternal Which brings us now to our text. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Notice it talks of redemption, deliverance. This verse tells us the how of how we were translated or delivered into the kingdom of his dear son. It was the ransom, the redemption that was paid It was not paid to Satan. So many people get this wrong. They think that Jesus paid to Satan the price. No, our offense is not to Satan. It is to God the Father. Our offense was against him. And therefore, there is a God word, a God-directed transaction. In fact, Hebrews talks about this being offered in heaven itself by the eternal spirit. And that satisfied the wrath of God. One of these terms that has been kind of casually dismissed in our theological understanding and in the Bible is the term propitiation. Who still talks about a God that is a propitiated? Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. God is angry with sinners. His wrath is upon us, and Jesus satisfies the wrath. He appeases it by his death. The demands of justice were met in him. And so notice that the text doesn't just say in whom we have redemption. It, it locates where that redemption peculiarly is. And it starts it with this Greek word dia, through. 
through or on account of through his blood. That is where the locus and the center of the redemption price is through Jesus Christ's blood. Why the blood? I remember 20 some odd years ago when Emil, one of our fellow elders who was supposed to preach this morning, when he introduced me to the preaching of the Free Peace Church, I had never heard sermons on the blood of Christ. And they riveted me, they shocked me, that the blood is so central a theme throughout Scripture. And the verse that Pastor Fletcher back then always talked about was this verse, Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. Simply put, the blood of Jesus represents the life of Jesus. Your blood, my blood, our lives, they'll never do. You can't give your life to pay the ransom price for your kids, even though we would want to. You can't redeem your parents. And as we see our parents getting older, oh, if they are not in Christ, we would want to, but we can't. The blood of a thousand will not save anyone. Only the blood of Jesus Christ will pay the price of redemption. And there's two reasons why the blood of Christ could pay the price. These two reasons are the merit of the blood giver and the honor of the blood giver. Think about the merits of this blood giver, the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply, he was perfect. He was blameless. We've heard this before, but let that sink in. He was blameless every day, every thought, every action. When he woke up, when he went to bed, in the middle of the night, when he couldn't sleep, always blameless, never violating the holy law of God. Every righteous demand of the law he perfectly fulfilled to the last detail. He fully loved God and man. He spoke 100% truth all the time. He fulfilled everything the Father had asked of him. You think of that. Children, your parents ask you to do something and ask yourself, even in one day did I perfectly fulfill what my parents asked me to do? Oh, we're so fickle. We're so prone to wander, not Jesus. He honored his Father in everything with unwavering and genuine heart full of commitment to his Father. In fact, his life merited the life, the favor of the Father, and it began with the favor of of the Father. Think of it. At Jesus' baptism, what does the Father say? This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And at the end of his life, before his passion, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The favor of the Father rested perfectly on the Son. Thus, the blood that flowed through the veins of Jesus Christ who would be deceitfully betrayed, falsely accused, unjustly punished, and wrongly crucified would be the very blood that would be given for people like you and I who do the unjust things, who do accuse people falsely, and do who do manipulate and backstab and betray. Think of the honor of the blood giver. He was the God-man. In verse 13, look what it says. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated into the king, us into the kingdom of his dear son, literally in the Greek, the son of his love. 
This is reflecting back into the heart of the Father. This stretches beyond time into the eternal communications within the Trinity, within the Godhead. The eternal intra-Trinitarian love that abided forever and ever and ever in time past when time didn't even exist and will into eternity. This love is on Jesus Christ. And therefore the honor of his life stretches that far. It is Jesus Christ who was in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18. He upon the Father's love was from all time. The angels cannot love as the Father loves the Son. A mother who intimately carries a child for nine months, and then after the child is born, draws that child to her bosom, feeds it, sustains its life. That love, mothers among us, that love cannot hold a candle to the love that the Father has for His Son. That is the ultimate love. All other loves are analogous, but His is the standard. Fathers, you who will do anything to protect your children and provide for them, your love pales in comparison to the love of the Father for His dear Son. Even the covenant love between husbands and wives, a picture of the love of Christ for the church, is but a paradigm of the love between father and son. For that alone is the eternal love. Counted together, all these loves, even the greatest of loves you have seen on this earth, are but dim reflections for the love that transcends all loves, the eternal worth of Jesus Christ, his blood is bound up in that relationship. His worth, his blood represents the life of Christ whom the Father has loved from all eternity. And that is why this blameless, eternally loved son could pay the price for you and I who deserve eternal wrath. Is it any wonder what Paul will say next? In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Because this blood atones as the blood would be placed on the altar and cover over the mercy seat in deep into the temple in the Holy of Holies. The core meaning of redemption is a purchased price, a redemption, a forgiveness. Forgiveness means remission. It means the debt is canceled. It means the account of the sinner is, stand, is cleared. But notice, notice in the text that the language of union. I love in Colossians, and I remember for all the years we went through it, look for the words in, en ha in the Greek, in whom we have redemption, who is in him, in him, in him. Throughout this entire letter, you will be riveted with our union to Christ Jesus and all that he provides, because accounted to us, is his righteousness. In him, we are declared righteous. In him, we are holy and spotless. What does this blood redeem us from? We've talked about the sin. We've talked about the bondage. But it redeems us not only from the, um, the just condemnation. It redeems us also from the power of sin. The bondage to sin, our innate sinfulness, our sinful disposition, our inclinations to always reject the word of God. Because of Jesus' redemption, we are no longer shackled 
and unable to resist. And I've talked about this in our Peter series as well. We are now able to war against sin. We formerly could not war against sin. The shackles were tight. We were stuck. And we were just living according to the motions of sin. But now in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 6, we can have our fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. It's possible now because of this redemption. Now a question that at some level we can just answer instantly. How lasting is this redemption? It's a rhetorical question. But it's a question that I would love to just have us dwell on for a second. How lasting is this redemption? Because the devil loves to sow in your and my minds a lower view of Jesus' blood. A last, less permanent view of Jesus Christ's blood. What Paul does here in the Greek is really interesting. Because in verse 13 when it says, Who hath delivered us, that is what's called in the Greek in the aorist tense. The aorist tense is referring to a past action. So something that's happened. But notice in verse 14, he switches tenses. And it's maybe not as clear in our English, but in whom we have redemption. That have redemption in the we have is a present tense verb we are having today. That redemption, why would he do that? He's talking about believers, what they have in Jesus, what, they, what had been done to them. But he reminds us of the present abiding reality of this redemption. Because the person of Christ and his worth never changes for us. His worth doesn't slowly diminish. And the value of the bank account slowly peter out. This morning I'm finished the, finally the biography of Wilberforce. And what struck me is William Wilberforce died a poor man. He was born into riches. And he was so, such a philanthropist. He gave so much away. And at the end he gave one of his sons a big sum of money to start a, a dairy farm, ironically. And uh, <laughs> we can talk about that later. <laughs> and he went broke. And he lost everything. Um, not so with our Lord Jesus. He gives and he gives. His worth is undiminishing. His value never changes. The redemption of Christ Jesus is permanent. The countenance of the Father on the Son will never waver. It will never darken. The redemption is enough. In fact, when Jesus cried out on the cross, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Tetelestai, if you, you just know what that means, that is a perfect tense verb. It has been finished. That means at the cross he accomplished and all of the effects abide forever and ever and ever into eternity. It has been accomplished. It has been finished. There's a permanence to the love of Christ. And so a judgment day, Christian, we do not need to negotiate with our futile efforts after we have turned to Jesus Christ and say, well, surely Jesus paid the price. Now look at what I've contributed. We don't need to do that. We don't do that because we will look forever and ever and gaze upon him who is worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Perhaps you are here this morning with a wounded conscience because of your evil thoughts. Maybe it was your impatience this past week to your children. Maybe it's the frustration you had with your parents. Maybe it was just selfish attitudes when you had an opportunity to give and instead you took because it was, you were there first and it was kind of your right you felt. And you know it was wrong. You know it was selfish. Maybe or perhaps you feel you were 
one so much more passionate for the things of God. You look at your life and you say, man, you know, 10 years ago, I would do anything for Jesus. And now I'm compromising. I, uh, I can't get out of bed in the morning and have devotions because I'm too tired. I'm not disciplined enough. And the distractions around you are consuming your time. And that's why you don't go to bed on time. Maybe that's happening in your life. And you start to navel gaze. And you start looking at your own efforts. And you start looking at how you've accomplished. And you start smuggling in a form of works righteousness. Perhaps that's you this morning. And you're sitting here and you know exactly what I'm talking about. In whom we have redemption. Even the forgiveness of sins. Your loving father, dear Christian, calls you who are washed in the blood to confess your sins, as John says. Confess our sins. Agree with God, homologia, and embrace the forgiveness of his sins. Perhaps you're here. You don't know this redemption. Perhaps you're here and you feel like your guilt is beyond grace. You've done things you're not proud of. They're worse than your neighbor. And you think they're unforgivable. Perhaps that's you this morning. Know this morning that our God, he is rich in mercy. He is rich unto all who call upon him. Remember Israel in exile, in slavery, 400 years. And God calls Moses in Midian at the burning bush. And Moses has to um, take his, or he takes off his sandals. And he is reminded of the holiness of God. He gets called back to these people. And these people say, who is Jehovah that we should serve him? They don't even know him. And yet God redeems them. He calls these people who were not a people as a peculiar treasure to himself. The gospel is so richly seen in Israel who had nothing to offer. That's you and me. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing to offer. Never expect you can offer anything in the value of God's holiness. Look to Jesus. He has offered himself for us. And so the Passover lamb was richly offered as a type of Jesus Christ. Remember that? The, the Egyptians would know mourning on the night. Mourning in the sense of M-O-U-R. Not the morning, but the morning that would come in the morning. The sadness that would happen, right? Because the angel of the Lord went out and killed every firstborn son. Not so in the Israelite camp. They were protected because the Passover lamb's blood had purchased them, redeemed them, and protected them. Remember this morning, as you go from this place, the only purchase price is the blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot stand before God without that blood. If you're here trusting in yourself this morning, if you are here this morning, you think, well, I've gone to church all my life. I've read my Bible thoroughly. I'm more disciplined than my neighbor. I've got all the answers up here. But if you are not in Jesus Christ, even though you're a really nice guy, and you treat your neighbor well, you will not stand in the day of judgment. You cannot stand in his presence without perfect, pure holiness that is found in Jesus Christ. Turn away from yourself. Stop looking inward. Look upward. Look to Jesus. His life alone pleased the Father. Look to him that gives assurance of pardon. Struggling Christians among us. Maybe you are plagued with doubts this morning. Maybe you are beleaguered 
with your defeats. You are looking down. And your head is cast down. Stop, as we are so prone to do, casting our gaze on our feelings. I don't feel right. I don't feel this. You will never be saved because of how you feel. You'll be saved because of him. Cast your eyes up. Lift up on high. Look to God. We begin in the mornings. Our help is in the name of the Lord. That is where we must cast our look. Look at him. Look at Christ. Look at his worth. Remember his acceptance. A life perfectly lived. Remember in Revelation 12, when the devil, the accuser of the brethren, was kicked out, it says they overcame through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony because they loved not their life unto death. And so I close this morning just appealing to anybody here who is outside of Jesus Christ with the last words of the book of Revelation, the last few verses of the Bible where it says this, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will. If that is you this morning, if you want to come to Jesus, he has his arms wide and he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the Son is life. Whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. Come to Jesus. Live. Know him. Look to him. Do not lose sight of him. And be in glory one day with our great God and Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for a life perfectly lived, a holiness that was pristine. We thank you that he who was in the bosom of the Father took on flesh to die for sinners, to redeem us from ourselves, from our guilt, our condemnation, that he has obeyed the law so that we may be ransomed by him, redeemed. Oh, we thank you. All we have is Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.